This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Hey everyone, welcome to Going in Circles Live. It's Tuesday, it's finally February, and we have a, a special guest that I've been meaning to have on for, for quite a long time, but he uh, he works a lot. So getting our schedules meshed hasn't been the easiest thing, but uh, we're talking about Stuart Morris of Lexington. Stuart is a... Uh, consigner. He, he's a, a sales agent, uh, sells horses for a living. He's also a breeder. He's owned horses. I, I trained a couple horses for him and his dad um, when I was training and uh, a, a great guy. And unlike a lot of people in this business, he, he's actually willing to talk. And everyone that knows Stewie knows that he will talk and talk and talk and talk. But <laughs> Just kidding, kind of. But Stuart is is a very um, blunt person, and um, he's not afraid to talk about things that a lot of other people won't touch. So uh, I thought that he would be a great guest, and he's been, um, you know, kind of uh, wanting to be on. And and he's uh, he's pro- this is probably going to wind up being a, a two session show because there's so much to cover. Uh, when you're talking about the sales game, the breeding game, the stallion game, uh, the racing game, and how all that that all meshes together, and uh, you know, I know that there's a lot of misconceptions, especially on social media, about uh, sales, about breeding, and and, and a lot of um, uh, areas that just aren't that well covered. They they are not that well explained, and and he would try to you know like to try to uh, to shed a little bit of light on. And some of the things that people might have a, a little bit of a misunderstanding about, and talk about the issues that uh, that exist. And uh, we've we've been friends for a long time, as not as well as business colleagues. And one thing that that we both agree on is that um, the racing business, and of course the breeding business and the sales business is all part of that as well. Um, that. There's a lot of issues that never get talked about, and everybody kind of like doesn't want to talk about them at least in public. And it's hard to solve issues if you're not willing to admit that they're even there. And Stewie will talk about issues, <laughs> so we'll have him on uh, in just a few minutes. I-, I wanted to briefly just touch on the Derby preps that we saw last weekend. Uh, the Robert Lewis at Santa Anita was won by Medina Spirit, who who was very very game on the lead. Um, the final time wasn't fast in the when you look at the time compared to previous runnings of that race and and of races in general at Santa Anita. But the Santa Anita dirt surface is amazingly slow. Uh, it's probably the slowest surface in America right now. And the fractions that Medina Spirit set were, in the old days at Santa Anita, you would have looked at a horse doing 22 and change, 46 and change, and not really thought anything of it. That 
would be considered, you know, normal. But with the surface as slow as it is, and it is probably three seconds slower than it normally would be, uh, those fractions were really, really fast. And he hadn't been on the lead in his last race. He chased uh, Life is Good, who's an entry mate of his and a barn mate who, who's actually a, a, one of the higher profile horses out of the Bob Baffert barn. But I thought Medina Spirit showed a lot of grit and a lot of determination holding off Roman Centurion and Hot Rod Charlie, um, both of which were kind of question marks coming into that race. Uh, Hot Rod Charlie had finished second in his last race, which just happened to be the Breeders' Cup uh, Juvenile, and he finished uh, second to um, the eventual two-year-old champion. So it wasn't though he hadn't shown he had some ability. The, the thing about that race was he was 95 to 1, because he hadn't really shown a whole lot before that, but uh, Doug O'Neill knew that he had some ability, and, he, and I probably knew that he wanted to go longer. Um, and he ran a good race to be third. He kind of got uh, stuck in be- between uh, Medina Spirit and Roman Centurion. And Roman Centurion, this was his first foray into stakes races after breaking his maiden in his second start. Um, it was also his first, uh, excuse me, a second start around two turns, and and clearly... He is a, a much better two-turn horse uh, for trainer Simon Callahan. Um, forget the rest. Um, I, I don't think... Uh, I, I'm not sure why Spielberg keeps attracting attention, but um, I know he did win the Lost South Futurity, but that was a really slow race, and I, it doesn't look at, right now as, as though that is going to be a, a real big key race coming out of Southern California. Um, at Gulfstream, for the Holy Bull, um, Sugar McGee had a horse, Greatest Honor, who was also coming off a maiden win at a mile and a 16th. And he really showed his his quality in winning the Holy Bull by about five, five and three quarters, almost six lengths. Uh, coming from off the pace to do it, he's not a horse that's got a lot of early speed, and He's a very much um, a, a Shug McGahey, uh type schedule has been mapped out for him. And he had two sprint races going seven eighths where he ran b- well in both times, uh, both times running third to uh, uh, with Cattle River, who running second. Cattle River just won the Smarty Jones at Oaklawn by the length of the stretch. Um, and, and I don't believe that Cattle River beat a whole lot in there, but... Uh, you know, horses that win uh, three-year-old races this time of the year going two turns by 12 or 15 lengths or whatever he won by uh, have to certainly be respected. Um, then he was tried at a mile and an eighth, and he got hung wide both turns, which for a two-year-old is is kind of a difficult task to be held, uh, you know, um, excuse me, to be hung wide, wide on two turns going a mile and an eighth. Uh, and that was over a really deep track at Aqueduct. Um, the beginning of the aqueduct meet, the track there was very, very deep as well. Um, but none of that knocked him out, and, and he came back um, down here and, and ran um, a big race where he, he overcame a little bit of interference in the first turn and you know swept by and, and, and broke his maiden and got a, a really nice um, number for that. Uh, coming into this, the Holy Bull on Saturday... The question was, um, 
you know, number one, that style of racing is always a little bit uh, vulnerable at Gulfstream Park. Uh, as we pointed out in, in the Going in Circles Digest, that was one of the only issues that we had with um, with greatest honor going into that race. He, he was the most likely winner of the race, but sometimes at Gulfstream, the inside speed can be tough to, to catch, especially in those mile and a sixteenth races where the, the finish line is uh, it's essentially a short stretch race. The finish line is, is more towards the center of the the finishing uh, lane than it is the, the normal uh, wire. But he didn't have much problem um, inhaling the leaders around the turn. He was asked earlier, and of course that was, you know, most likely because uh, Jackie Jose Ortiz was cognizant of the fact that it is a short stretch, and with a closer you just can't, um, wait too long, but he made a nice big sweeping move uh, four wide um, to pass the speed horses and drew off nicely. Uh, he galloped out really well. He, he came back. I happened to be standing um, uh, about an eighth of a mile past the wire watching him go by, and he came back, and, and he was full of energy, and, and uh, he did not look like a, a tired horse. He looked like a horse that was ready to to go again. Um, he's a tappet cult and tappets are, you know, tappets can be difficult, uh, horses to handle. And he was a little bit edgy in the, in the post parade, but he settled down nicely. And after the race, uh, he, he really looked fresh. He looked good coming back. He's a, he's a tall horse. And, um, I mean, he has everything that you would look for in a derby type horse. Um, his progression is gradual. He's getting better. The distance should not be a factor. He certainly has the pedigree on the damp side uh, to go as far as a mile and a half. Um, the The time for the race didn't come back hugely fast. I think Time Form US had him at. I think Craig had him at one fifteen. I think he got an eighty nine buyer. I, I don't know what kind of sheet number he got. Uh, he had a four thoroughbred going into the race. I would have to imagine that he would have gotten something probably a little bit north of that for that race. Uh, so he, he's really um, probably the, the the leader of the East Coast at this point going into the uh, the Derby prep season. Uh, there's a couple preps this weekend. Uh, the Sam Davis is at, uh, is at Tampa. It's looking like a, a pretty sizable field, as it usually is. Um and we have um, the uh, the Withers at Aqueduct um, also coming up this Saturday. I, I think that's not going to be a big field at all. Uh, the, the Aqueduct races have, have seemed to be uh, smaller fields. Um, the following week, we have three derby preps. We have the El Camino Real derby at Golden Gate Fields. Uh, we also have the Risen Star at Fairgrounds and the Southwest which is looking right now like um, the biggest derby prep so far in that uh, um, essential quality and, and uh, the two-year-old champion and uh, uh, Jackie's warrior, who was the leader of the two-year-old band going into the Breeders' Cup, and, and he wound up you know, getting in all kinds of uh, pace and traffic trouble in that race. They look like they're both pointed to that race. So uh, that race is also on a Monday. Um, so, so the Derby, uh, season is really heating up. 
Um, we'll see what happens. Um, I just wanted one more quick note. Um, unfortunately, I, I got the notice on Sunday that uh, John Forbes had passed. Uh, trainer John Forbes was a, um, a a really big figure in New Jersey racing. He's uh, been a top trainer there for decades. He had the, the really, really top horse um, who's wound up being a, a, an influential stallion in Tale of the Cat. Um, and John wound up uh, doing a lot of stuff for the horsemen um, at Monmouth Park. And he's he was a, a long, long time uh, fixture there. And a nice man, um, was approachable, you know, a really good guy. And it's funny, you find out things about people after they die. I mean, I was never really close with him or anything, but apparently he was like... Um, like like in the miniature golf hall of fame i didn't actually even know that that existed but uh but that was one of his passions and and it's funny you know you know a guy for 30 years and you had no idea that, that that's something he did but uh i know julie crone um has said many many times that john forbes was a huge influence in her career when when she was starting out and uh you know it's crazy to think but but when julie was starting out it was still difficult for for women to to get mounts um you know live mounts equal to to what a man would get and uh and certainly that's that's not the case anymore but um yeah john forbes passed away he was it was uh 72 i believe so kind of a sad a sad thing but um we'll change courses now and now we have a happy thing uh are you there mr mr morris Simon, how are you this afternoon? Uh, always, always a pleasure, Mr. Stuart yes, Morris. Um, for the audience that doesn't know the name Stuart Morris, <laughs> explain what is what it is that you do, Mr. Morris. Um, I would probably consider a consigner slash webstock agent. Um, I'm kind of the guy in the middle that finds people with nice horses that want to sell them to people that have money that want to spend on them, whether it's in the private marketplace or in a public auction house. Um, I also help folks uh, purchase broodmares and stallion seasons and manage broodmare vans, the sale of those horses or the management of those horses' racing careers sometimes. So I would say, say that I guess the best way to send me up is I'm a catch-all bloodstock agent that can do that has a finger in a whole lot of different wells instead of uh, focusing on one segment of the marketplace. That that's a very apt description. Um, you know, it's funny. I was talking about you the other day, and I was saying that you you almost never miss a sale. Like you 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 sell uh, mostly young horses, but. Um, whether it be OBS or Fazig Tipton or Keeneland or up at Saratoga or Timonium, you seem to make them all. Well, yeah, that's part of my, that's probably my design. I learned that from my father, um, my dad, Jeff Morris, over at High Clear. He was always one that felt like if, um, for, for in, in traders' parlance and gambling parlance of the racetrack, if I can get in a van and be 3-1 to one, or I can stay home and be 30-1, to one, put me on the van to be three to one. So a lot of times placement and where you have these horses in the crowd are standing around is very important. Um, and also a lot of times in the regional markets, there's a lot of money there that just needs more quality horses to pay for them, uh, or excuse me, to give them an excuse to spend it and pay for those better horses. So my dad was the first guy to go to Europe in the 80s from the States and sell horses and did that very successfully for a long time. And he was the first one at the Houston Polo Grounds when they first started selling 
yearlings in Texas, and I was he and I together, and I was working for him with the first ones kind of to hang a shingle regularly in Ocala at the yearling marketplace. So we've always been travelers and and not afraid to put a horse on the truck to to to, uh, to maximize its uh, its it, uh, success and uh, opportunity to stand out in the crowd. Attend. Right. So you've of course have been in this business since you were you know you were essentially born into it. My, uh, I was very fortunate. I'm a second generation guy. My dad um, didn't really, he kind of cut the road into this industry for our family um, regarding the thoroughbreds and the breeding of those. My, actually, his, both his siblings, my aunt and uncle, were very accomplished riders. Um, my uncle Greg rode several very good steeplechasers in his time and actually galloped broad brush in his career because he was so tough and things of that nature. Um, and my aunt Beth, who's married to Bill Wofford, was a very accomplished rider, both in the event ring and on steeplechasing. And my her husband was a big uh, rider and uh, steeplechase trainer as well. So my dad was kind of the not horse guy in the family, but ended up being the one that was more in the mainstream of the horse stuff. But everybody's had a career there, and I'm carrying the, 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 it on for our, my generation. My brothers are one's an attorney and one's an environmental lobbyist. Um, but I got involved when I was very young. I uh, got bit by the bug and was very fortunate to have a, a nice farm to grow up on and. That and, and that exposure. So um, it's been a lifetime passion for me. I've been very fortunate with a lot of the um, mentors and friends and family and folks who have helped me along the way uh, to get where I am. And we're certainly still trying to get better every day and and do a better job for our clients every day whenever we can. So, but it's been a very fortunate path for me. Stuart, let me let me ask you a question. What, what's uh, what do you consider your, your most successful sale? Um. So that's a that's a good question. That's a good question, Chuck. Because some would argue last year it was when I found a son of Wildcat Red with a moderate female pedigree family that was a superior physical specimen. In fairness to the club, probably one of the best yearlings I've seen in the last five years with my own eyes. And I took him to Ocala and sold him for one hundred eighty thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, so some would say that would be my great success. Um, others would be when I sold the horse. For my, when I was working for my dad for over a million dollars in Saratoga. Some would say that would be my biggest success. Some would say it was the mayor I sold for a long time, friend and client, Nelson we're making for a million bucks. Um, I would be more prone to think that those fancy ones and the really good ones, it's kind of like when what I understand training a really nice horse, just kind of keep them sound and stay out of their way, and they kind of take care of it for you. And it's not dissimilar for a very nice horse in the marketplace, whether it's a mare or a weanling or a two-year-old or whatever it is. Um, for me, it's probably more of the, the lesser-known ones. You know, selling a horse like Henley's Joy uh, for Mr. Ramsey that become a great one winner for my other friend, Mr. Bloom, the Bloom Racing. Um, you know, I, I sold a lot of horses for not a lot of money. But at the end of the day, Chuck, I could there would be too many dimensions where – through the hard work of my staff and myself and the hard work of the client of mine that brought the horse to market properly, we were able to get an extra forty or $50,000 for a horse, and that was able to change somebody's year financially and maybe allow them to breed their mare to a better stallion and improve their program or buy a better mare to improve their program or send their kid to private school instead of public school if that's what they want to do or just make a difference in someone's life and the, and the financial part of it um, is, at the end of the day, what my goal is and what my job is. My job is to maximize the most money for my clientele base. So, and oftentimes, that's 
more, how do I say this? Um, there's a lot of folks I work for that an extra 50 grand at the end of the year changes their whole year. So it means a whole lot to them, you know? And that's probably the most important thing for me is being blessed with the opportunity to work really hard and make some extra money for some folks so they can do things that will hopefully make their lives better and put them in position to raise a better horse if that's what they want to do or things like that. Sure, that's that's so true. And I think it's so true in racing um, as well. If you think about what people talk about, I mean, listen, when I opened the show up, I was talking about last week's Triple Crown preps and, and next week's Triple Crown preps because that's the thing that gets the press. But people forget that uh, there's racing the other six days of the week. And at the sales, uh, you know, Keeneland covers uh, book one at, at – uh, or, excuse me, TVG covers book one at, at the Keeneland sale, but there's usually five more books to go that they don't cover, and, and, and that's exactly. the bulk of the industry. It, it's mostly people who, who are, are, are not, uh, you know, Sheikh Mohammeds or, uh, you know, Judmont exactly. Farms, and, and, you know, those are, of course, the glamour um, operations, but not everybody is that, and that's one of the things that, uh, you know, often gets uh, misunderstood and, and, and overlooked, especially um, on social media, and and we're you know mm-hmm. our fans follow the game. There's not a lot of people out there telling people, um, you know, the reality of the situation, which is one of the reasons why we started this podcast was to to try to uh, educate people and, and make them realize that um, you know not every horse that that's a success has to be by um, into mischief, even though every into mischief seems to run. Yeah, um, <laughs> he seems like a pretty prolific horse at this point. It's been a long time since we have one like that, isn't it, Chuck? It's amazing we that just, every weekend we co- I come in here and I'm looking at um, you know stake results, and and um, it, every weekend he's got somebody has won a stake somewhere, and, and it doesn't matter if it's a filly or if it's a cult or I mean they haven't had a whole lot of success outside of authentic going too far on the dirt um, going long, but. They win a lot, and uh, but yeah, but now he's starting to get turf horses. At least those guys had a shot for a while. Now he's getting good turf horses too. Man, he's, he's pretty amazing horse. He's some, and you know what the scary thing is? I, th- I think he was like, what was he like, ten or eleven percent stake horses, and that's, that's from, the, from, from a big, big yeah. book. I mean, when you think back, Northern Dancer one year was like twenty eight percent stake horses. <laughs> you know, yeah. obviously from a smaller book, but. But um, you know, that's it's sometimes we forget. A, a guy had said a couple weeks, uh, I guess, a couple months ago now, talking about into mischief, and he's like, "Is he the greatest sire ever up to a mile?" And I'm like, "Dude, Mr. Prospector." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Like, you start talking about names like that, right? <laughs> Mr. You start Prospector. About those generational names. Yeah, yeah. He's he's done really really well, and and it's like I said, as every week. Uh, every week, Spendthrift, not that they need it, gets a, a free promotional uh, talk from me because I'm saying, well, you know, there's another into mischief stake winner, but uh, he, he's he's uh, he's turned into some sour. And he was a horse that started at 7,500. Oh, yeah, and it had like, uh, I think he averaged less than 35 registered yearlings in every crop of his first three crops. So in those early crops when he was getting vijacked and... Um, Golden Sense and all those horses, that was literally out of a pile of like 30-something mares. That right. wasn't like he was getting 145 mares. That was out of a pile of 30, 30-something mares each year. 
which makes it even more remarkable. Yeah, I mean, he he you know? he, he proved his way and he worked his way up, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and and that's what guys like you do. You, you you're out there and trying to to find the the stallions that maybe you know um, the the progeny that 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 fit in between the lines that aren't the obvious ones that you know are by. Uh, like you said, uh, Uncle Mo or, or you know Galileo or you know and those ones are you know it doesn't take a, a genius bloodstock agent to to come up or to sell or to buy those types. But uh, but enough of uh, enough of that. Um, sure. Well, I- actually, kind of is interesting, Chuck. You mentioned that with all the young horses. I mean, just think about this, right? Tappet, Warfront, and Into Mischief all started to stud for less than fifteen grand. Yeah, that's that's Absolutely very true. Good, right? That's and very true. An interesting thing right now, which I think is something that leads into what we've been talking about or talking about talking about going forward, is the situation where um where um Fraser Kitson's bringing back the freshman side showcase for the first time in ten years. Um because there's such a dearth of exciting young freshman sires right now. I don't just mean justify and those guys at the tip top that are standing for six figures. Right. You know, Cloud Computing is doing a very good job with his first group. Army Mule's doing a great job consistently. More Spirits getting a, his fair shake of good looking babies. Good Samaritan's doing a great job. Um, there's a whole bunch of young horses that are coming home that have two year olds this year as well with their first crop, like Practical Joke and Clemson and Cupid and all these guys with the young ones, and then the guys that have their first crop weanlings, their babies being born right now. So um, don't don't know, forget, don't forget. Uh, talking about with the shell stuff with that basic bringing that back, but you know, you think about that really truthfully, right? I mean, Tappet, Warfront, and Into Mischief all stood their first years for less than fifteen grand, and I'm sure not on, not this similar, not this time when it was the beginning of the two-year-old year, and he wasn't having the best success. You were probably buying seasons in for three or five thousand dollars, like you were not this time um, earlier this year. You know, before his two year olds went to the two year olds, sales started selling well and really showing up at the races later in the year. And, um, and uh, don't don't forget uh, Kent Theros. You know, Kent Theros um, and his son Buchero. You know, Kent yeah. Theros was a horse that started at the bottom. Um, yeah. I think he stood for five in Florida, mm-hmm. and, and I don't think he needed to give five in, in, when he when he before he had mm-hmm. runners. And then once he started getting runners, everything won. I bought one and sold one um, down there last week, you know, by that time. You know, we bought, bought a nice one that we're hoping to take to the July phasing sale. And I, I sold another one that uh, very, very I'm happy about. And I'm kind of actually hoping to get that one back again in October, but we'll see. But, um, you know, it's a, there's a lot of nice young sires out there right now. And so it's kind of exciting as a, when we get a lot of fresh new blood in there, it kind of reinvigorates the marketplace. And I think that's what we're seeing. Those guys at Fazig are pretty sharp, and and uh, I think that's what we're seeing by them bringing back that special session that's only dedicated to 100% freshman sires um, uh, to uh, capitalize on that part of the marketplace. Well, I mean, let's talk about stallions. One of the things that frustrates people, um, fans of racing, is is that it seems as though all the good horses are retired early, and mm-hmm. it's it's certainly. Um, not a new trend. This is not something that just happened. Uh, I mean, probably Secretariat was probably the first horse that was retired as a three-year-old because back then horses were almost. It was the breeders insisted on races horsing, a uh, racing as older horses uh, carrying weight, and, and those things were, were a lot more important than they are these days. But um, 
you know, uh, authentic of certainly would be the the number one um, horse in that he was retired, you know, seemingly completely sound, uh, and, and just it was like he got better every race, and it just is sometimes I think people are frustrated by um, not being able to see those stars race uh, past three. So I think that's something that that uh, of course the market. Um, is what it is, and, and people are going to, uh, I've, I've said a million times, I hate to try to spend other people's money or tell them what to do with their money, but uh, um, it, it is a frustrating thing from uh, from a, 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 a standpoint of people not in the bloodstock game. Well, I don't disagree at all. I mean, I think it's something we see. Um, obviously, that's what their hope is, and I think what the plan and they're trying to do with the, with the Pegasus, and they're trying to create these, these um these big race days. Uh, I think if we can get back to the old days when uh, you and I were young men in the eighties, Chuck, and and there was the the, the, the triple Tierra in New York, and there was the older horse triple crown, the Woodward, and, the, and those races meant something then. The Don handicap, like winning the Don was like winning the Derby. I mean, it was a major race, and I think those races with an older horse division that fall into the wayside via purse structure and. Um, and uh, and um, prestige because of the post structure, and also those horses are going home. So it's kind of like, why am I gonna? If you're Gulfstream Park, why are you gonna put so much extra money into the Don instead of the Florida Derby when there's no older horses to run in the Don, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, they're all going home. And you know, like in the case of Authentic, I mean, what are you gonna tell those guys, right? Seventy-five grand, hundred and fifty mares. I mean, you can do the math on that. No, ab- absolutely. A racing career. I, I understand um, why they did it, and the fact of the matter is, all those uh, my racehorse. Um, dot com partners, uh, you know, th- those guys would have owed them ten million dollars had they kept winning races every time <laughs> they won a race. Some guys lost more money. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting that uh, on last night's podcast, I was talking with Barry about, um, <clears throat> and and this might you know might not go over great in, in Lexington, but uh, I, I think the Breeders' Cup really needs to, to step up and, and do more. Uh, I, I think that they, the, the event that they run is fantastic. It's a great two days of racing. But racing is more than, than, than two days, and that's our playoffs. And, and our regular season needs help. Um, we need to somehow bound together uh, our, our races so there's a path to the championship event uh, and, and like you, you had mentioned, the Triple Tierra, the the Handicap Triple Crown, the American Championship Racing Series, and uh, it, it looked like there was a whole West Coast series for older horses this summer, right? And and I mean, there was there was these series all over the country, and it was perfect. It's kind of like the regional tournaments for the Sweet Sixteen or the Final Four, right? I mean, you got the the best guys in the West and the best in the East and the best, and then everybody comes together at the end of the year and have a big crash. But you've got to promote the whole year. I agree with you 100% about and, that. And, I mean, and working towards that would be great. We, we've had... We, 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 right you know, we, we've had situations where the best horses just duck each other all year because they figure they'll make it a one-race showdown, hit or miss in the Breeders' Cup. And that's great for the Breeders' Cup, except you you might... It might be better if you had situations um, like Sunday Silence and Easy Goer. Um, where oh, no they had, doubt, man. or they had already raced each other a couple times. Uh, 
and I hate to keep going way back, but uh, Bet Twice and Ali Sheba and and mm-hmm. and, and ra- you know w- w- races where there was um, uh, you know horses had had had, had competed all year, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know it, it's just the Breeders' Cup is great, but uh, I think that racing needs to to, to try to do something. Uh, there's too many stakes right now. There just is. I mean. Our fall crop has, since I started training, which was 21 years ago, the the fall crop has been cut almost in half, and yet oh, we, absolutely we, half. we still absolutely we we have about we have about five percent less graded stakes. There's just too many of them, and I'm not I'm not going to say well let's get rid of them all, but we have to make um, even the graded system can be tweaked in that the Kentucky Derby, the Breeders' Cup Classic, those are grade ones, and there's some grade ones that just aren't really grade ones. Mm. And I mean, the, the race that the, the, the Pegasus turf last week. All right. Mm-hmm. It was, a, it was a competitive race. It was a nice race. Mm-hmm. It's a grade one race, but it was, it, there was no like real grade one stake winners in the race. So mm-hmm. how can that race get the same classification as the Kentucky Derby or the Breeders' Cup Classic, Cup Classic and, or and, the, and 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 that's or right, Ireland, right, exactly. The, the Met, the Met the Mile, kid. you know. And, and and then you can go to the Grade Twos. The Jim Dandy in a lot of years could really be a Grade One. Let's be honest. There's, there's just so many. You know, I, I just think that there's a way that it can be done to kind of um, supersize some of the Grade Ones to make it. Where there, it's incentivized for for connections of top horses to run in, in these races, um, and get more competition on the racetrack, and, and maybe make um, you know bigger days even bigger because the trend to bigger days is here to stay. It, it works and people like it. Um, but by the same token, we have to keep expanding in this business um, because we have to keep getting better. And, and I think sometimes. In racing, we like to rest on our laurels, and we like to say, "Well, this is the way we've always done it." But uh, I mean, we're in a situation right now where, uh, for the last uh, close to a year now, there haven't even been people at most racetracks. So you know, things change. You know, right? Exactly. I mean, things change. I mean, and and we have to change with them. And um, like Barry, you know, I talked to, I said to Barry last night, I said, you know. There's a lot of changes that be needed to be made. These are like the the champagne and caviar changes, you know. Oh, of course. Like talking about. We don't want like, to talk about the men and the blood we, Right. We 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 need to you know set up a series of grade one races. So, but but it it, it it's just that's that's our high profile uh, horses, our high profile events, and and those to me, um, again, I'll probably never get invited to any more Breeders Cup cocktail parties. But uh, oh, to sure. me, I think that they need to try to find a way. To tie the rest of the year into their races, the win and your end thing, I, I, I've, I've railed against that for a long time because there's never been a horse in the history of horse racing that won any of the win and your end races and didn't get in the Breeders' Cup. It's it's yeah. uh, you know it's an automatic. Yeah, it was, it was, that was going to happen anyway. Yeah, I mean along the same vein, I think one thing that would help a lot, Chuck, too, is that with you know if if we're going to try and do the get the rivalries cranked up again like they were when I was a kid. When, I, when we were kids in the 80s, you didn't have to go online and have some website and a code to watch the races. Yeah, yeah. There was racing like every weekend. If your newspaper where you lived didn't have a guy writing about horse racing, writing every day in that newspaper, you were a small-town newspaper. 
Yeah, we, you know? we've lost a lot of we've lost a lot of our media. Uh, a lot of so our media turned into this. I think the big push we're making right now on the social media and the internet stuff is good, but even just to simply like America's Best Racing being on Fox Sports too. I was exposed to that a lot this year because I wasn't traveling as much and I wasn't out as much for obvious reasons. Things weren't happening. And those guys are great. They don't just talk about gambling only. It's a show where someone can sit down and get a very well-rounded, good exposure to horse racing. And there's the little characters, the personalities in there. And I'm not saying that show's perfect. But for a show that I think, as I've talk to new people that have gotten interested in horse racing that are my friends and so forth. The sheer um, professionalism and well-rounded presentation that show makes and with the great people they have on it, which I think is a whole lot of very good advocates for our industry on there that have genuine affection for our industry on there, which shines through and helps a lot. Um, we got some more positive exposure, you know, because they talked about the not the best stuff all the time. And it wasn't always about gambling all the time. And I think that's something that's a very important thing. And I think some further expanded exposure on a regularly scheduled time. I mean, think about it, Chuck. You got Monday night football. When Major League Baseball is on, you know there's three or four days a week you can turn a TV on and watch baseball if you want to watch it. You know when it's basketball season, you can So if I want to watch horse racing, what do I have to do? Well, I have to either go online or have something this or turn on my computer or whatever. You know what I mean? And I think just that's if we can get back to where – we had that simply like every Saturday in the summer. There's going to be on CBS with Jim McKay. Well, I think you know? the, I think the problem with that, Stuart, is that is that TV is kind of becoming passe for the younger generation, and the Breeders' Cup has a big issue. Uh, and I'm not just harping on the Breeders' Cup, but um, they have a big issue in that most of the Breeders' Cup races are are on uh, NBC SN, not. The big channel. The big channel only shows, I think, the the last few, um, and the entire day on Friday is shown on NBC Sports Network. Uh, but NBC is getting rid of NBC Sports Network. It's going away, and they're they're putting most everything onto their streaming services. And I think the one of the issues, like this show, my demographics, uh, they skew older. Um, I, I would, I think about 85% of my audience is in the 40 and up range. Um, so uh-huh. it, it, it's a, it's an older demographic and that, that's an issue. And, and, and like you and your friends and, and our friends, you know, we're still TV people for the most part. And, and that, that's what we grew up with. Cable TV was, uh, kind of when we were kids kind of expanded our whole universe. I mean, when we were really young, you know, there was four channels, um, and then cable kind of, you know, really changed, changed American society. But now um, we're, we're transitioning. The world is transitioning to Netflix and to Amazon Prime and to uh, oh, Hulu exactly. and things. And we need to do that. And I think that's. But I'm talking about the presentation of the sport on that show is what I'm talking about, Chuck. Yeah, no, I, I get I get that. But. The it's thing is, this is that it's very easy. It's, it, they found a great group of people that translate from the guy that watches Sports Center that can watch that show and see the structure and the way it's put together, and it's going to be visually comforting to him and familiar. You know, no, so I, it's it's they do it. Whether you have it on Hulu or they do an or excellent, an excellent whatever, job. Then it's on one of those things. 
But, you know, the one thing I thought would be fantastic if we could ever get one without even, you know, the cost would be prohibitive almost probably and it, it, the cost of the signals for everybody and then all those things and bang, bang, bang. But if you could just have a horse race, a horse channel, you know, that had, when it wasn't live racing, they just run old reruns of Let It Ride and Secretary Seabiscuit and the old movies and stuff and or interviews with trainers or, you get people like Chuck Simon all of a sudden has a TV show on there for 30 minutes in the winter when they're at Gulfstream talking about just the goings-on in South Florida's training centers and what's happening and who's working good over here and who's not and, you know, all those things. They, um, they could have the, the Chuck and... That would be fantastic. Just, I just think the one thing I keep thinking about is that all these other sports that we're competing with and trying to talk about, which, look, the reality is, are we going to catch up with the NFL, the Major League Baseball, NBA, college sports? Never. But can we do better? I would like to think so. Um, I think the fact that you can reliably go at any time and know exactly where to find that sport to watch it or watch shows about it, whatever you want, is something that's important and needs to be kind of addressed somehow. I don't know how to do it. That's not something I know about. I'm not, you know, I don't pretend to be a guy that can solve that problem, but I think that's something that would help us for the fans that do like our sport and how do they find it consistently to gather more information and, and learn more and, 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 and like it. You know? We we could have a show. Chuck and Stewie hit the buffet. That's right, baby. We'll hit the buffet. We'll, get, we'll, we'll have to tour around South Florida and all the great hot spots to eat. We'll have, Bobby we'll, Flay, we'll have Bobby Flay make us food until one of us gives in. There you go. I like that. We could do that one. Uh, you know, what? one of the issues that we have in this sport is that it's been uh, a circle of wagons type of deal in that the information, the data that that uh, is, is owned by Equibase uh, isn't very readily available, you know, or it's expensive. Um, Roberts Communications essentially will, you know, has, has threatened uh, guys on Twitch, um, you know, streaming uh, races, trying to teach people how to bet, um, not actually, you know, profiting off of it. They, they've threatened them with, uh, you know, sending them to federal court, which which is just you know over the top, and and that that's kind of like. The business has got to understand that sports wagering is coming, and I'm sure people that listen to the show are sick of hearing me saying it, but it's coming, and it's not going to be good for us. It's going to be bad. It's going to take a lot of our customers away, and if they have free data, we've got to have free data. If they have, like you said, easy ways to watch racing, easy ways to watch replays, easy ways to watch historical races and things like that, we've got to have that. Because if we don't have that and we keep it behind a paywall or, or we just don't simply have any access to it, well, how are you going to convince a 25-year-old guy that racing is the, is the sport to follow and, and it's a game to, to put your money in if you can't get a third of the access and the availability that you can get from uh, NBA.com or Major League Baseball or football. And and I think that the, the leadership of this business has to really open its eyes up and say, we have got to change the way we do things. And if it's a sacrifice of some money, like, I mean, to be honest, I don't care if Equibase makes money. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me because it's owned by the tracks and the jockey club. And I don't care about that any of them make any money. They make money at other things. And and they're going to have to give that up at some point or they're going to really damage the sport. I mean, I think it's ludicrous that you and I, uh, you know, I, I trained horses for you and your dad, that I can't go on there and get a PP 
from one of those horses, none of which are famous, unfortunately. And, and it's, you know, it, it costs, there are some infamous ones, but I don't know if famous <laughs> would be the right word. It, it, you know, it costs fifteen dollars for me to get a people oh, of our horse. Oh, I, this is one thing I think that when I mentioned FanDuel buying Fairmont Park, that I think can help us as an industry if we get more of those kind of operations making commitments to our sport, which is what I believe FanDuel, at least that's what they said they're going to try and do. We've got to take it with face value because they haven't lied to us yet, right? So we've got to give them a shot to be truthful. But they're not trying to shut that track down and just have a casino. They're going to have the quarter million dollar St. Louis Derby this year, apparently. You know, they're trying to make horse racing better, but also use it to capitalize on what they recognize as the potential gambling dollar. If horse racing is treated like a real wagering sport, like the major league baseball, NFL, NBA, college sports. And so if some of these big gambling entities get more involved as a quote unquote, more partner than more adversary for us, then that could be a side benefit for us because those whales are big enough to mash on those guys and either just create, go hire the best guy over there and pay him double just to give us the same stuff or whatever. They'll find a way around it, right? I mean, they're going to get around that problem if they decide it's something they want to do. So I kind of view that as something in the information stream, which I listen a lot to the um, – to the to a lot of the other satellite radio shows and things, and a lot of the gamblers talk about that access to information and why is it so hard to get hold of? And you've heard guys that are guys that bet a lot of money, like seven figures a year, and they can get so much information readily available from every other sport they gamble on except horse racing. So I love it, and I think it's interesting, and I would love to know more about it. But how can I? really throw in all the way when I can't get all the information I feel like I need. And then I feel like there's guys out there that just because they know somebody or they're spending money I don't think I should have to spend, they have more information than I do and they have a leg up on me to do better than I do. Better level playing field, you know? Well, when, when you look at the stock market this last week and, and all the <laughs> all the consternation that, that's, that's happened and, um, and you know, you know I, I, I don't want to get too far into it, but, you know, some of the troubling aspects of of – being a, a normal person trying to just trade stocks um that the 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 hedge fund you know the the corporations the the big money people they own the politicians and they're just crushing the the little guys and it it's just unfortunately in horse racing on the gambling side that's kind of happened a little bit as well in that some of these elite groups are, are just kind of um, you know they're getting huge rebates and they're squeezing the regular guy and I think that's one thing that racing needs to do is to attract um, people actual people that, that want to be involved in the sport want to bet the races but also you know have a want to follow the triple crown want to follow the best horses and you know, have an interest in going to the races and things like that instead of just guys who are betting sheer numbers and they don't really care anything yeah, about guys, the numbers because they, they might find something better to bet on to make their bets via algorithms and what the computer tells them right that's basically how that works and 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 you know what they might find something else that's more profitable and take their money there and all of a sudden you know we're left holding the bag because we cater too much to them and there's a i know there's a balance and i'm, I'm simplifying it uh to the extreme because it's complicated and, and honestly it's probably kind of boring for most people to listen to but 
but it is it is it is you know it does matter and i, I think maybe um you can kind of talk about uh the stallion market and, and how that works and and with um you know kind of just discuss the jockey club uh with their plan of implementing a a limit on uh are they is it a limit on mares bread or is it a limit on foals well, that's kind of the debate right now. I don't know that it's been clarified. Depending, depending on who you speak to, um, it's a limit on how many stallion service certificates the stallion farm can, 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 can register or sell. Right. So when a mayor's, just for everybody to understand, when, like, for example, one of my clients asked me to acquire a season for them, I contact, say, my friend Charlie O'Connor at Ashford Stud over there, Colmore, Kentucky. And we say, hey, I need one of these. Do you have one for this mayor? Yes, she's good enough. We have a contract. Please send it. So I signed the contract on behalf of my client. My client agrees. It says when their baby from that mating with that stallion is done and the foal stands and nurses and is alive, they'll then send their stud fee and their check and the taxes to Ashford. And if there's no live foal born that does not stand to nurse, they owe no money to the stallion farm. That's the basic rudimentary of it. Um, and um, that's kind of how that goes. And then that doesn't necessarily tell you how many mares you can breed. Right. In theory, and again, like you made the example with the extreme, um, with the gambling just now, Chuck, um, if, say, a man like Mr. Ramsey, who had his own stallion kittens joy and put every mare he owned to that horse, Right? Well, if Mr. Ramsey wants to breed 220 mares to Kittens Joy, but only register and provide stallion service certificates for 160 ones that they think are the best ones, and then they can take the other ones and make them into riding horses or performance horses or whatever they want to do with them, then in theory, depending on who you speak with, that would be a, vi- a viable option for a wealthy person to do if they wanted to do that. Right. So ostensibly, you would be breeding 130, you know, you'd be breeding your stallion to maybe up to 50 or 100 more mares if you wanted to, and then evaluating and, and selecting the best 125 or 140 or whatever the number is that's been determined um, to do that. And if a wealthy mind wants to do that, why can't he, right? I guess. Uh, and that, that would be the extreme and the most random example, but that's just kind of the uncertainty I think some of us have, depending on the debate and who you speak with. Right. Is it say I can't breed the mare, the stallion to more than 160 mares, 140 mares, because there's multiple covers for breeding season. You know, your mare may go to visit the stallion three or four or five times in a, in a, in a breeding season. Right. So Explain to people... Um... Covers the horse makes, just the number of mares he can get pregnant. And that's the whole debate where I think that needs to be clarified and and then it's the whole debate of, you know, when you get into the legal arguments, uh, just the sheer legality of it with restriction of trade and the fact that in other different, there have been similar trials and similar lawsuits and other breeds, um, and how those were handled that set some precedents. Um, so it'll be a very interesting dynamic going forward because there's definitely two camps in that situation that says uh, don't put any limitations on anybody, uh, let the free market determine what to do. Um, and, uh, you know, horses like Into Mischief, if they're good enough, when they're breeding 30 mares, they'll make it. <laughs> right. You know? Um, 
And if they needed 200 to make it, then God bless them, they needed 200. But the market can determine that. Um, so it just depends. But there's two major camps. And, and in my opinion, the whole big debate, Chuck, comes down to philosophical differences that lead to financial differences. There are some, a smaller number than most, stallion farms around here that feel like that stallions shouldn't breed much more than 100 to 110 mares a year, let alone 140. Um, and I believe that due to the extra money that their competitors can pay to buy a horse because they're willing to breed into, say, 160 or 170 or even 220 mares in his first year to recoup that financial investment paid for the horse, um, their philosophical differences, which if you want to get into the health of the horse and the philosophical part of it, it's one of the discussion. But regarding the financial aspects, which is what I think leads us to all these industrial arguments and fights that we get in, uh, money's always the root of that situation. And it comes down to some folks that are being outbid and outpaid for stallions because they choose to philosophically breed fewer mares. So um, that has created this rift and divide in the industry, which has then created um, through unpresuming influential people and enough folks that think it's valid to have it be brought up from the jockey club to make it a rule which I have heard rumors, and I don't think I'm unique in this, that uh, there will be a legal challenge drafted by several of the big farms that don't think that's fair and want to be able to breed as they choose. Um, and uh, it's ultimately, I think, going to come down to the courts um, before it's all said and done, in my opinion. Unfortunately, a lot of things these days. Um, mm-hmm. what, what, give me um, – now tell people I, – I, I wrote a couple of things down – uh, people have to understand, and I think this is something that uh, a lot of uh, fans don't realize, is that the conception rate is nowhere near 100%. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, and even more than conception, the live birth right. um, is, is the bigger thing. Um, uh, you know, a lot of horses may end up in the 90th, in the mid-90s percentile for a conception rate. And that's and for Kentucky. But there's a, there's a not minor... Um, not minor attrition rate due to just not live foals born. Pregnancies lost and reserved after the breeding season is over and the mare can no longer be bred. Um, a pregnancy lost so far into the pregnancy that the mare is incapable of cycling again till the following year. Um, so there is attrition much higher than people realize. I haven't been directly in the barn breeding mares in a while, Chuck. Um, but I believe the percentile is in the mid to low 80s of actually what gets there. That was one of the unique and remarkable things about Clint. I think he bred 220 mares, and he had like 209 <laughs> registered yearlings that are now two-year-olds in his first crop. He, so He got the it, job that's done. that's like unheard of. Like horses don't do that. Like stallions <laughs> don't do that. Most stallions that breed 220 mares, they have 170 live foals, 180 live foals. Right. There's something wrong with that thing. Having a horse that would be 220 to in the low 200s for a registered yielding rate is just unheard of and unprecedented. In the regional so, markets, the, the the percentage is lower, correct? What's that, sir? The, in the regional markets, for the most part, the percentage oh, is lower. So, yes, sir. And that, some of that's due to um, to um, financial constraints on what can be done to maintain the pregnancy and so forth because right. of the economics, the sheer economics of the market they're in. Um, it can be due to some of the vets in the regional markets may not be caught up with the most current reproductive um, veterinarian techniques to get mares pregnant. 
and or to have stallions at the best fertility. Um, it's become very, as a lot of things do, um, scientific. I mean, there's hormone labs that check the testosterone on stallions daily and the mare's hormones, and then the vets have to ultrasound them to see how their ovaries look and if they're going to ovulate soon and what the inside of their uterus looks like on an ultrasound, and then how she teasing with the stallion, with the teaser, and then can we get to the horse on Thursday at 3 o'clock? No, he's not available for Sunday at 2. Oh, no, what are we going to do now? So it's a very um, complicated dynamic in Kentucky due to the access to the stallions and being able to get your mare to him when you need to breed her because a lot of times there's a lot of other mares who want to be there too. So those issues have created a environment in Southern Kentucky here where, we're, where there's a lot of advancement you know, this time of year, daily, weekly, and monthly within the community that doesn't even reach out into the real world. It just stays around here because everybody's just talking to each other. And so sometimes in the regional markets you find some vets that may not have a sophistication regarding reproductive medicine as advanced as it is here. Right. Um, doesn't mean those guys aren't great vets and very competent veterinarians. It just means there's a lack of exposure to the newest techniques that may prevent them from being as successful as some of the guys around here that just have that immediate access at all times. I mean, shoot, the Bruck Center is right around the corner over by the football stadium. I mean, they do most of the research for that stuff in the, in the country and the world, you know? Sure. So we're very fortunate around here to have that opportunity with that kind of care for our mayors and foes and our stallions in Central Kentucky. Stuart, we're going to step away and uh, take a commercial break. And uh, on the other side, we'll, we'll talk about, uh, about, think about this during the break. To you, what's the optimal number for a stallion? And uh, okay. answer that on answer that on the other side of the break. Okay, give us yes, a minute. Sir. Yes, All right. Sir. Why in the past decade has BRL Equine become the premier equine supplement company in the industry? Because we spend millions in research and development before we ever put out a product. Because we use only FDA supervised facilities to manufacture for us. Because what we say is in them is in them. Because they work. Because if you're not happy, I'll give you your money back. And because top trainers and veterinarians in thoroughbred racing, standard bread racing, three-day eventing, and barrel racing all trust in BRL Equine. Shouldn't you? To find out more how Flexify HA, Unlock, Bleeder Shield, and EPO Equine can help you, contact me, Joseph Volante, 215-501-6880. This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. All right, Stewie, we're back. Um, the question was, what is the optimal number for a stallion? And let me add, let me add a second question. Um, as a stallion gets older, that number has to come down? Okay. So, first of all, for the older part and the number coming down and the longevity of a stallion's career as a stallion, I personally believe that the shuttling to Southern Hemisphere breeding and breeding another 100 mares on the Southern Hemisphere side of the year, or breeding even 20 or 30 more years in the U.S. on Southern Hemisphere time, 
is more detrimental to those stallions than breeding 250 mares a year for 10 years in the regular time of the North American breeding season and then giving them the next eight months to rest, recover, and be ready to go again the next year. So to answer the longevity part of that at the end of it as a stallion, I think let the stallion tell you what to do. And that kind of lends itself, Chuck, to what I think is the best answer. Because in, in fairness, the best answer, in my opinion, and this is I'm, I'll explain myself when I say this, is that I think a stallion should be bred to the most mares that he can safely and healthily cover and get pregnant that the guys that are selling his seasons can sell. So if a stallion can cover 125 mares a year and get 123 of those girls in full, and he stays healthy and strong, but if he breeds to 130, he's going to fall apart and stop him at 125 and manage your horse properly, and God bless you, and don't oversell your seasons. Okay, I think if a stallion can get to, say, like a horse like DeHare. DeHare was a phenomenal stallion, right? But he had fertility issues. You had to be very careful how you breed him. You know, so you breed him to fewer mares a year, but you're getting more babies because when you overbreed him, you get fewer babies because he's so stressed he can't get anybody pregnant. You know, so in my my in actual fairness, to my opinion, not to be flipping it and avoid it, I don't think it's fair to put a number on it. Is what I'm saying, Chuck. I think to say that because, like, look at Into Mischief. He started out with 30 mares and 30 mares and 30 mares, and then he got good, and it's has 110, 20 mares, 150 mares, that's 250 mares, right? And he's handling that, and I can promise you that the one thing that the, you know, the market that everybody needs to understand is that these stallion farms take very, very, very good care of these golden geese. These stallions are worth a lot of money, and they take very good care of them. And they're not going to put the health and safety of these horses in jeopardy by overbreeding them. Because if they're not getting live foals, they're not getting paid. So if the horse can't get the mares pregnant, and the mares don't have a high percentage of have a live foal on the ground, it's a waste of time to even sell that season for the stallion farms. And in my opinion, and maybe this is going to, some people are going to say I'm naive in this, and some people are going to say this is foolish to think that anyone would put the horse in front of a dollar. But I believe at the end of it, at the end of the day, the vast majority of people taking care of these stallions do, and by definition, they have to because the healthier and stronger that horse is, the longer and more, the longer his career will last. You know, um, so I think that's the fair answer. To be honest with you, Chuck. And look, is the number probably 160 to 180 mares? Probably, probably is. Because once you start getting into those numbers, in my opinion, you start losing the quality of mare that matches the rest of them. You start overstressing your stallion, making him more susceptible to get sick, to get a mare sick, things of those natures. Now, then you have horses like Clint, and um, a source my dad, and he's staying called Malabar Gold. And the more you bred that horse, the better he did. He thrived on it. He got better on it. He got stronger on it. And he was good on it. So if a man gets blessed with a stallion like that, why would you think it's okay to tell him he can't breed that stallion to whatever man he wants to to have an opportunity to make some money? Um, you know, I think that's the most important thing. But for me, it comes down to what's the most healthy thing for a stallion. And I think that if you're not in the stallion barn with the horse, you don't know. And to speak of it like you do, unless you do work in that stallion barn with that horse every day, 
you can't fairly or properly speak about it because you don't know how the horse is handling those things. And that's what it comes down to. In, in my opinion, it's kind of like when you were training horses, um, and this may have been different opinions from other people in my life, but you're the trainer. You tell me what we're doing. What are we doing today? Are we going to work today? No, we're going to skip this work. He needs to rest. We're going to go next week. Well, I'm not going to tell you you have to work him every week. You know? Mm-hmm. I'm going to let you tell me what the horse needs. And I think it's the same thing with the stallion masters out there taking care of those horses. But at the end of the day, they're going to do right by the horse, and they're not going to put the horse in jeopardy for illness or injury at all. Right. Well, that that seems, it seems fair and logical. Uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, what what when does it get to be too uh, old for a, a mare to breed? <sighs> well, that, that again. <laughs> <laughs> Once you start getting into the mid to late teens, um, it just starts getting harder. Um, you may go every other year. Um, you may not have as strong and viable a foal as you did when the mare was younger. Um. You know, I want to say that in some mares, my dad has owned mares that when they were 14, they were just done. They just didn't get pregnant anymore and didn't have any more babies. Right. And we've had mares that we bought when they were 14, and they put nine more in the row on the ground on them, and the mares looked like they were 10, and we just stopped breeding them because we felt bad because they were 24. You know what I mean? They looked like they were 10 years old. They certainly would have been pregnant. I mean, we had one mare for a while. They had 11 in a row for us. You walked her past the stallion barn, and she was going to get pregnant. She was an amazing mare. Super photo, great caretaker, thrived having babies, had 11 in a row. When she missed one year, we never brought her again. We just turned her out for the rest of her life, and she hung out at the farm. Um, but I would say as a general rule check, probably the late teens in the 16 to 18 range is when you start getting into where it becomes a much – more demanding husbandry responsibility to take care of those mares and veterinary responsibility to take care of those mares so they're healthy and strong and can care of those pregnancies without being compromised. Right. right. Yeah. That makes sense. But I would say mid to late teens, 16, 17, 18 times. I, I know that there's a lot of consternation when an older, especially an older successful mare goes through the the sale ring in, in, their, in their 20s where a lot of people are... Uh, you know, uh, understandably upset because uh, the thought process is that, hey, that mare has done her job for over 20 years and she deserves to find a um, a safe haven and not a to go through the sale to be bought for, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, once the horse leaves the grounds, you don't know what, what goes on. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I know that that's an issue that um, it's probably not one of the bigger issues that, that the world of racing is worried about, but it, it might be something that, uh, you know, perhaps we uh, we could inquire into to maybe making uh, a, a limit. Well, there, there are some certain rules in certain sales. Yeah. Like if a man hasn't had a fall in so many years and they're not done, you can't put them in the marketplace. Right. Things of that nature. Um and I think the biggest thing is, Chuck, I think more than older mares, in my opinion, but I think any horses, whether it's a young horse with some confirmation deformities and crooked legs or significant medical compromise from being born sick that you can look at and tell is a compromised horse, they're not unhealthy and not poorly cared for, just going to be weak and have problems its whole life. 
I think there needs to be some sort of protocol and, and dynamic that those horses just don't go in the marketplace, whether it's a young horse or an old horse or whatever it is. Um, I don't know how you would do that. You know, that again, that would be something for me that I would like to give some advice to some folks that would have a better way to put a, a, a scale or some way to measure what to do on there. I do know the sale companies have protocols in place when they get, because the one thing we do do at the sales and the industry, if somebody brings some stuff to the marketplace, it looks very, very bad and is very, very poor and has not been well cared for. I know there are mechanisms in place for um, the sale company to take action and care for those horses and make sure they end up in a good home. Um, so there are some things involved in that, but I think Chuck probably the overall better care from our marketplace and from the industry for any horses to go into the marketplace compromise or in an elderly state of their life or whatever it may be needs to be better policed as a whole, you know? Sure. Absolutely. Um, let me ask you this. This is probably more pertains more to, to your business, uh, than the breeding business. Um, what about, uh, sales prep? Uh, explain what you guys do uh, or, or the people that, that get them ready for you uh, to get a horse ready for, say, the uh, what's the biggest sale, the September, Keeneland September sale. So you have a yearling, and say it's um, April, okay? So the horse is, is one years old. It's, it's April. Maybe it was born in April, so it's a year old. What's, describe the process from, from that point to the, the September sale. Okay. So from by that time, that horse has been looked at multiple times by possibly more than one consignor, or certainly me if I'm selling it, and my owners. And we're discussing which sale to take it to. We decided the September Kingdom sale. We'll start discussing which book we would maybe target the horse for, book two, book four, book three, book five, whatever it may be. Um, around that time of year in March and describe and, and, and before you go Before you go any further, how, how do you determine – um, explain your, your, your thought process in determining what book that you go okay. to. So that's an interesting dynamic because Keeneland, this sale in Keeneland September is very unique in that it's only, uh, it, it's a sale that half the, half the sale horses are inspected by the sale company and deemed to be above average, quote unquote, for pedigree analysis and physical examination and justify being in books one, two, and three. The theory of the Keenan September sale and of the November sale is that the better horses and the better bred horses that are worth the most money are going to be expecting the most money in book one. And the horses with the least physiques, typically the least pedigrees more than anything else, are in book seven or book six or whatever day, day 22, whatever day that is at the end of the sale. And it's a sliding scale all the way down the line. So just like when you're reading a condition book and you're looking at, say, where you want to run a horse, uh, a maiden special weight on a Friday or Saturday at Saratoga is going to be a way different dynamic than a maiden special weight in Indiana Downs the same day. You know? And so we start beginning to look at those dynamics to figure that stuff out. And um, when do you have to have – when, when is the final – um, and you kind of look at pedigree and where your pedigree is, and then there's my physique and how strong do we, you know, what do we need to be to maximize the most money. And the goal is to try and figure out what the marketplace is going to value your horse at, where it belongs in the marketplace, 
and then putting it in front of the most people that are at Keeneland for those days looking to spend that money. When, when do you have to make your final determination as to what book you'd like to be in? June. June, okay. <laughs> three, months of, three or four months, three months before. Okay. All right, so, so go back to April. In May, Keeneland comes around in late, beginning in late May, early June, and their inspection teams will go around the country um, not just to Kentucky, but obviously there's nice there's all the horses in New York and everywhere, and then they'll then they'll they'll sit down and decide where they think the horses should go. And then as a consigner, we also once my entries are done the first of May, then my entries are put to bed. We send in our quote unquote wish list, our placement schedule that we think it should be. And I would say if I've got 25 horses, then I'll say okay, I'd like these three horses in book two. And these eight horses in book three, and these eight horses in book four, and these six horses in book five, you know? And then Keenan will come back, and they'll say, well, we want to put them here. And then there's a little bit of Jocelyn and rigmarole, and we go up and down the ladder a little bit, and then we put it to bed, and then we get our hip numbers later in the summer. Um, so that's kind of how that sale dynamic goes regarding Keenan. When we're going to phase the into the July sale of the Saratoga sale, which deems inspection, we nominate the horse, they look at the horse, tell us if we can come or we can't. Right. And then depending on what their response is, we either then go to Keeneland or we go to a later phase of chip and sale or we go to another venue. Sure. Depending on um, what we think is the best option for the horse. Uh, you know, it's interesting that um, I bought a horse and, and uh, I remember, <laughs> you remember the Philly Genuine Devotion? Yep. I remember she was the first crop of Rock of Gibraltar, and uh-huh. she was in book one. She was hip number, I think, 93, and she uh-huh. she wasn't out of a stakes-winning mare, and, and, uh-huh. and the mare was young, and she hadn't produced any stakes horses. So I was one of the reasons I looked at her, because my thought was, wow, this is book, this horse is in book one. And this is when book one was still uh, two days, yeah, it was book four one. days. And I remember calling you up and saying, can you come look at this horse? Because it, I really liked her. And I remember Jerry Dilger had her, yep. and Jerry said to I said to him I said you know not not to be a, a, a jerk but like why is a horse of this kind of pedigree in book one? And I remember him saying nobody wants to be in book one. They had another horse that they had that they wanted to get in book one, and if we wanted that one in book one, we had to put this one in too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wound up buying her, I think, for ninety thousand dollars. I remember I, I had you come over and look at her, and, and mm-hmm. I said, like, "Am I missing something, or is this a really nice horse?" And I, I can't remember your exact quote, but it was like, you know, like yeah, like thumbs up to her, something like that. And uh, we bought her for ninety thousand on a day when the average was like three hundred and fifty thousand. Yep. Simply because she just didn't have the pedigree. I mean, grade one placed, uh, grade one winners uh, are, are, you know, that that's usually the, the damn side in those book one horses. And it was just kind of interesting that the only reason I even looked at her was because she kind of lacked that book one pedigree. Exactly. Exactly. And th- th- that is an issue we deal with now is that, you know, if you're, if you're in book one, and you don't make the cut for the elite of the elite for the big money. It's not a difference in five or six hundred to three or four hundred. It might be a difference in five or six hundred to having to call your boy Chuck Simon and see if you can sneak out ninety grand. <laughs> right. 
you know, which isn't necessarily a bad thing for Chuck Simon, but when you're on the other side of that coin and you're trying to make money, that's a that's a pretty big haircut, no. you know? Um, so that, that that's kind of how sometimes those things evolve where, uh, you know, somebody may have to sacrifice something and go up there. And, and that's one of the things I'll tell you that does frustrate some people about that human and has put some horses to face Egyptian is that their big October sales growing very well. It's become a very big marketplace, a very reliable marketplace, a very international marketplace where you, know, you may not be able to get a million dollars for a horse, but there's consistently three hundreds over there and there's consistently four and six hundreds over there. And there's enough money in the room. If you didn't mess up and have a million dollar one over there, there'd be money in the room for it. So a lot of people like the uh the uh, fact that when you go to the October phasing sale, you enter in, and everybody goes in a big pile, it's just alphabetical. And you may have a race day next to an end of mischief, next to a medallion Doro, next to two big trucks out of Oklahoma, and uh, they're all just in the same pile, and you got to go find them all. Right. And um, so that's just another format the way to do that with phasing system. Well, go, go, ahead, go back to April and describe the physical... Um, the work that you, that you you do with a yearling uh, outside yeah, of the handling. Real quick, one thing I want to talk about, too, on the stallion thing before I forgot about it. We were talking about the numbers. And the one thing I think is I lean towards the free market and beat as many as you want as the horse can be healthy for, right? Right. And one thing I think that also reinforces that is the fact that that allows stallion farms to keep stud fees down. And Tony Gunther wrote a very good article in the Thurber Daily News um, probably a year ago now when all this flared up stating that if the books were restricted to the numbers that are being proposed, the Dan Avino Rosso would not have been bred to Curlin because he wouldn't have had access because the man wouldn't have been good enough compared to the other 140 that were in front of her. And Justified never would have been bred to Scott Daddy because that man also wouldn't have been enough mayor if the restriction books down to the 140 or less was in place. So... Just as a sidebar real quick, I think that's one of the things we risk. You know, at the end of the day, one reason we still do live covers is we want this to be as natural as possible. At the end of the day, whether you believe in the good Lord or Buddha or whatever's out there, or the Wizard of Oz, there's a lot of mother nature that we have no control over that makes these horses into what they are. And when we start restricting who can breed what to what, I think we restrict the magic of our industry where that horse can come from nowhere, from the small breeder, to change the life. And those things, and so I think that's one of the, my biggest reasons to advocate for just let them take care of their stallions and breed fairly. I think is something that ought to be done, and let the market determine what to do. So that's one of the number one reasons why. Okay, that's so, fair enough. Sorry for that sidebar. No, that's back that's, to April. That's fine. So what we're doing in March and April, depending on the age of the horse, is we're doing a set of survey X-rays where a veterinarian will come to the barn and we'll tranquilize the horse so it stays quiet and calm. And they get a mobile x-ray machine out with a computer and digital x-rays, and they take 36 views of the horse's joints, knees, all four ankles, hocks, and stifles. And what we're looking for is any defects from normal in there, any spurring, chips, uh, weak sites, lesions, um, those things that would cause a weak bone. Um, if we find any of those defects radiographically, the vast majority of those can be helped with simply time and mother nature, maybe a few supplements, or possibly even arthroscopic surgery to repair the defect as well. So a lot of times what we're doing in March and April is we're getting that done because if you want to bring a select horse to a select sale, it needs to have select x-rays. And 
So that kind of helps us start determining the whole picture of where we place our horses in the sales. We also, at that time, at a lot of our farms, will go ahead and stick a scope in their head for an endoscopic examination, make sure there's the normal anatomy needed in the airway, make sure everything's working okay as well to make sure that once we get to the marketplace, we're presenting an animal that's got the best future for soundness regarding airway and bone that we can provide to the market, and then obviously be very uh, upfront with everybody about what that situation is so they can make the decision. So that's being done then, and then depending on, uh, we'll say a horse doesn't have to have a surgery, so we don't have to change anything about how the horse is living. At that time, this horse may be living in a big 20-acre field, 30-acre field with 10 or 12 buddies if it's a colt, and if it's a colt, he's going to go moved into a paddock by himself. Because we don't want these colts beating the tar out of each other, just like teenage boys, they get older, testosterone starts dropping, they want to be the bull of the woods and start fighting each other. And if we're trying to bring a horse to the marketplace, walking one in there with a big fat shin from getting kicked, or a scratch down the side of its head, or whatever it may be for wrestling, it's better out in the field, we don't want to do that. So we put them in the paddocks, uh, which doesn't really do anything but put them in the paddock by themselves and doesn't really change a whole lot beyond that. The Phillies would stay in small groups in the big fields. Um, then in my traditional program, when I'm prepping horses, Chuck, I have a dentist come in. We float their teeth. We pop their wolf's teeth out. We then break them to the bathing and the wash racks and the simple machinations of things. And then we'll start forced exercise, controlled exercise, whether it be hand-walking them at a very fast walk up and down hills to build cardio and muscle, or if that means lunging them in a round pin at a jog to build up muscle and cardio, ponying them with a pony like you see at the racetrack where a horse is getting ponied um, with no rider on it. We'll do that with the yearlings out in the fields. Um, some people have swimming pools at their farms. Some people bring horses to equine swimming pools, and they'll put the horse in these pools to swim them to build up their muscle mass and their cardio. Um, there's also underwater treadmills with a few farms that people use. Um, but basically what we're doing is the same thing as would be preseason. You know, we're doing fitness, middle preparation, and um, fitness for going to the sales to be shown hopefully a couple hundred times in a day, having to hold up to that physical and mental strain of that pressure and handle that with a plum and do well, um, and then uh, stay strong and healthy at the horse there for four or five days to be sold in the best possible light. Now, explain to people that sometimes when you're at a sale and you're a consigner um, and the horses that, that are in your shed row that, that you're selling – uh, explain that sometimes you haven't seen these horses for well either maybe oh. ever or or for for a long time okay yeah for example my group in january i just sold last week in ocala um i last saw all of those horses in october right so. now that's not typically my traditional methodology um part of my deal is i try and see them more often than that um, because if someone is not, you know, whether they're a novice or an old-timer, when you stay in your own barn and you look at the same horse every day, you can get a little barn blind and not see little nuances, and all of a sudden you're 10 days from a horse, and you're like, oh, no, that horse is fat, and it just jumped on me because I missed it, now all of a sudden it's like a tick. Or the other way, I've been working it too hard and it's too skinny. So I try to come in on a more regular basis than that traditionally, but obviously this year I couldn't. But, yeah, so for me – in January, Keenan, and, and here, for the most part, a lot of those horses I hadn't seen in months. So it's kind of exciting. when they, It's like when you guys, when you were training, you'd have a van trip for all your new two-year-olds. You, you haven't seen them in a while. You don't know how they're going to act. You don't know what they're going to look like. It's kind of a grab bag. And I'm 
very fortunate with a great crew of people that work for me at the horse sales. And a lot of my clients do a great job getting their horses ready that we don't have too much in regards to the way of, uh, of uh, side shot challenges that come out of left field. Um, I'm very fortunate with the clientele base that is good at preparing their horses for public auction, having them prepared professionally to come in there and show well and handle things. But we do have the odd ones. You know, the, the ones I find are the most interesting ones are the ones that are kind of the mom-and-pop operations where it's just a couple or a couple and their kids, and they're raising the horses themselves, and the horses have never left the farm. And all of a sudden, the country mouse comes to the city, and this baby is seeing all these people it's never seen before in its life at a sale ground where it's never been before except the little small farm where it grew up. And there can be a little kind of culture shock for those guys, and we've got to help them get through that stress um, to ease through that transition. Um, but uh, most of them come through it quite well, just like any young horse come to the racetrack for, for the first time, seeing all the activity. They can get excited and, and, and get wound up, but usually after some time and some extra attention from the guys in my barn, they calm down and we do just fine. Now, once they get to the, the sale grounds, um, there's not much you can do at that point, right? I mean, it, it's just kind of, uh, if they're not handling it, they're just, I mean, what, what, what can you do with a horse that comes in and maybe they were great at the farm, but with all the commotion, um, they're, they're acting up. Do you, do you get a lot of those? Well, we, we, we used to get more. And I think the biggest reason we used to get more is just um, people have gotten better at how to get their horses ready for the marketplace, you know. But you do have more ones that come in town and they fret. And you may move them to a different stall. Where if you brought one parked where there's a lot of commotion and it's near the entrance of the barn and there's a lot of horses walking fast all the time, you may move that horse down to the shed room where it's a little quieter and a little less commotion going on all the time. Um, I've got a guy that works for me that I've put in the stall with him just to sit there and he's an old... Jamaican guy named Lloyd, and he sits in there and just sings to him and rubs on him and keeps him happy. And so, we do that sometimes. So you make um, Lloyd into a goat. Around, huh? So Lloyd is actually the goat, not Tom Brady. Yes, no. Lloyd, <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Exactly right. Lloyd's a great goat. He is the goat. Um, but, you know, you just get them through it just like little kids going to school for the first time. Chuck, that's the best way to describe it. You know, when you take little kids to school for the first time, some of them freak out. Well, you get them through it the best way you can, and it's different for everyone, you know? Right. Um, the one thing that you can change, I have noticed, uh, if you have them, like if I have horses that ship into me on a Saturday, and I don't sell them till a Wednesday, if they ship a little bit tricky, and they lose a little bit extra weight on the ship, by the time I get to sale day, I can put that back on a lot of them. Mm-hmm. You know? And actually having a horse come in and having people see it for three days in a row and have the horse be a little bit better each day can't help. But that's not because my people did a bad job. It's just because the horse shit's a little tricky and we're just rehydrating them and feeding them properly at the sale to fill them back up, you know? That's sure. all. Sure. Ab- absolutely. Um, how do you guys determine... Um, do most of your clients... I mean, obviously you work together with them, but how, how do you determine um, what your, your reserve is going to be? Well, I am fortunate that most of my people are trying to sell their horses. So I have a lot of input on that. And there's some basic rudimentary um, frames you use, Chuck, uh, stallion averages, uh, tangibles. Sale prices, how's the sale been in the two hours before we're walking up there? 
Um, how was the sale the day before? If it was such so the day before, what kind of activity do you have in the barn? Um, how popular is the horse in your barn? How how much do people like that horse in the barn? And we can tell that by how many times they come back and come back and how many times they get examined by veterinarians for their x-rays and their scopes. So that kind of impacts it as well. But a lot of it is kind of my job. And sometimes it comes down to just having a feel for how the market's going. For me, I'm a little more... I hate to use this word. I just hate to use the word organic. Um, <laughs> then, then, then the guys that use the analytics, if that makes sense. Um, I'm not Billy Bean so much from Moneyball. I'm the guy that's kind of out there. And I'm standing outside my shed row in my consignment, and I'm talking to people, and I'm watching them how they react to the horse when the horse comes out. If they seem to be positive or negative, um, how many times have I sold a guy a horse? What does he like to spend? So it's a combination of things for me. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of guys that do a very good job doing what I do that would be completely different than I am, that would be much more analytical and and um, statistically driven than I am. Um, I'm a little more of that by feel kind of guy. Like, what do you feel at the right time? How's the room feel when walking up into the ring? And then sometimes, Chuck, just like when you're training horses, you know, and you know walking over there, they're all running for seconds. Right, right, right. No, no doubt. Sometimes you know, you know. Sometimes when you're walking them up there, that you got it lined up. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, we're going to get our picture taken. The work is done. I remember you know? one time at Churchill Downs, I, I had that same feeling. Uh, I, I, I was going over there with the boss, and and then Steve Penrod came in with this Claiborne horse who had had all kinds <laughs> of issues. <laughs> and and I, I immediately was like it was like when you you put the pin in the balloon you like my I was yeah. completely oh, man. and uh, it, it turned out that horse was uh, was flatter <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, yeah he, he he pretty much pounded us but uh, it's, sure. it's still, it is funny though like sometimes you go out there and you have such confidence like man this horse has been training great and and, and it's 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 like uh, it's, it's sometimes why horsemen are, are poor handicappers because. They're too focused on their on their horse and not the other horse. And uh, uh, mm-hmm. like your team might be might be practicing awesome, and everybody's coming together. But you know, if if you go and you play the uh, you know a team TV that's 12. a team that, that's, yeah the exactly the team that's ten lengths better than you, it, it probably doesn't yeah. matter because you can't beat them on your best. <laughs> but, it doesn't uh, matter. You bring everything you got, and he's going to smoke you by twenty. Doesn't matter. Sometimes that happens. How yeah. how often do you go up there to the ring? Um, and, and are surprised that I, I'm sure it's like training horses. There's a lot of horses that train really good in the morning that don't mm-hmm. produce in the afternoon. There's very few horses that train like, like shit and run like crazy. It doesn't yep. happen very often. Like once out of every 200, maybe mm-hmm. how, how many times do you go up there and, and you are you surprised pleasantly that your horse brought uh, a lot more money, or the two guys that you weren't expecting to wound up uh, kind of going head and head and bidding them up? Well, it happens enough that we go up there hoping it happens all the time. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> you know, um, I would like to tell you that at every sale I get pleasantly surprised by at least one horse, um, but I try and keep my expectations realistic. And I would tell you at every sale I get disappointed by four horses. Right. I mean, for me, Chuck, um, not to quote Moneyball again and not to be cliche-ish or silly, but um, I hate losing more than I want to win. 
Right. No, that's understandable. When my guys give me my room to pick out the spot that I'm going to sell the horse, and the horse shows up in his vets, and it's beautiful, and a really good, sharp guy buys it. It's got a lot of money, and he buys a lot of stake horses, and he's one bit past the reserve because that's the only guy that found it. That makes me crazy. Let me ask you this, talking about... But the other surprises are you walk up there and you thought you had a couple guys, you had a couple guys that were being cagey, and there's some guys that are real cagey guys, right? And you don't know you got them until they're bidding on your horse. Right. And the fun thing is when those two of those guys show up and you get lucky and there's a couple cagey guys show up, and they go banging, and you get an extra hundred because you thought you might have one of them, and you were hoping you'd have both of them. Sure. That does happen enough uh, that we do uh, we, we go up there every time as best we can, you know. And obviously, Chuck, look when it's a when it's a bouncing market and there's a lot of energy in the marketplace, that's more prone to happen because guys will just get feeling good and they'll get more aggressive because there's an energy in the room and there's a positivity about the whole horse sale. It's a good thing to be doing buying horses, you know. Let me let me ask you about this. It's a little bit of a controversial. It's been controversial for years. Uh, uh-huh. What about vet work? Uh, like, what is? Uh, I mean, just asking you, what about vet work in in, in general is is too broad. But um, do you feel? Oh, that- here's what you're asking about. We have. I'll explain to the people that don't understand. When I go to my consignment at the horse sale, every horse I'm selling has been examined with the veterinarian for endoscopic examination for the functionality of the airway. And it's also had 36 x-rays taken of all those different joints I mentioned earlier, you know, and then an opinion as to the variances of normal in each joint on radiographic soundings. So variances of normal, as I mentioned before, can be spurring. It can be a fragment. It can be a small chip. It can be a crack. Something called sesamoiditis which is a, a voodoo word right now. Um, it, it's basically a catch-all for some possibly compromised bone due to slow development and slow uh, filling in of that bone as the horse matured. Um, and so I have that information provided to me from my veterinarian. I have my veterinarian's opinion of the scope, the endoscopic airway exam, as in a one being the best, and a four being you can't breathe at all uh, clinically, quote-unquote clinically. And then there's the variances in between that of what's accepted normal, what's perfect, what's the acceptable variation of normal that's not perfect but still good, what's a little bit trickier, and then what's ones that we just think are probably not going to breathe because they already have some significant paralytic impact on their airways already. Um, and then I have opinion of, of all the joints the same way. Does this, is this joint normal? Does it have any defects? So forth and so on. Um, the debate that Chuck's referring to, I believe, and he can correct me if I'm wrong any time in this process, is the dissemination of that information and the need for the accuracy of said information since me as the seller have paid for that information and I disseminate it to who I choose to should I not be able to have an influence over said information. Um, in my opinion, no, you should not. In my opinion, the fiduciary obligation of the veterinarian is to disclose any defects they seem viable. Now, if a vet says that that defect that one vet says is significant is not significant, then that becomes a debate between the professionals of the veterinary medicine. You know what I mean? Uh, is that a chip or is that a shadow? 
Is it a fragment or is it not issue? Is it this? Is it that? And that's when the, 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 that's when the debates can come in play. Um, a lot of the buyers, particularly in September, this is a bigger issue than the second week of September than anywhere else in the country. Because there are 400 horses off at a public auction every day. And the buyer base, if they want to view all 400 of those horses prior to those horses walking into the ring on, say, Thursday, they will have Wednesday from 8 to 4 to look at two, the 400 horses. Obviously, cannot be done very effectively. So people like to look in the back ring when the horses parade before they go to the pavilion. And then in that truncated timetable, it's hard to get the x-rays examined and certainly to get an endoscopic exam done, which means impossible when they're walking around down there. So... The buyer base began to rely on the sellers, and the sellers provided information on the reports. And then there's a debate sometimes after the fact as to the validity and the accuracy of said reports. Correct, right. And that's what the debate's about. Do you recall- now, my opinion is, and what I tell all my vets that work for me, and that every one of them will tell you this, you put on there what you think needs to be talked about. You put on there what you think you don't have to defend. If it's something on that report, if you there's something on those x-rays that you don't put on that report, you be ready to go stand in front of the arbitration battle with me to fight for it and make sure that you think it's such a not a big deal, you don't need to put it on there for that. And then I'll stand with you for that. Just be honest. I just tell them to put it on there, whatever's on there. That's what I do myself. I feel like myself that the vast majority of my brethren do the same thing. Now, do I think that there are varying opinions in the repository where all the x-rays are kept between veterinarians about the same set of x-rays? Absolutely. Do I think that there's a lot of the debate and fighting over the true validity of those reports occurs for things that may not necessarily be the actual validity of the reports, i.e., which practice did it? Which practice do I work for? How much is he laying by the fire? Has this guy been putting bad stuff on reports all the time, in my opinion? So things become involved that I think aren't necessarily the most accurate thing. Um, so for me, I feel like the reports need to be accurate and accurate to the best of your veterinarian's opportunity to put them on there for you and be fair about it, not deceive anyone. And I do believe there's human mistakes made. I know there are. It's happened to me. You know, secretaries will forget to put a defect on a, on a, on a line on a, type, on a type report from a handwritten report. You know, when the vets go through all those things, they're handwritten out. Well, their secretary may, may just, when they're doing 500 of those in two days, they may make a mistake and simply not put something on there. I know that's happened before. And when that happens, we take the horse home. No big deal, no harm, no foul, our mistake. We'll take the horse back happily, you know, and we're done. So I feel like that it's been blown up by a very few small circumstances of people that did deliberately deceive folks and try to have false information on there. And... Um, that's unfortunate, but I'm very, I know that's happened, and I do think with all my heart that that's a very, 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 very extremely small percentage of the sellers of horses, and that um, those reports are very reliable. I do think on the same side of it, though, Chuck, that my owners and I spend over $1,000 a year x-raying horses for the horse sale. We do them in the spring. We do them again in the fall. We do the spring surveys, possible surgeries, to bring these horses to market in the best physical condition we can. And I personally feel like that if you don't want to go spend your own money on your vet to read those reports and you go off mine 
and there's a discrepancy afterwards due to a mistake made, or you think that what my guy called Thesmoiditis, he should have called it severe Thesmoiditis, and you wouldn't have bought the horse. Well, you know what? I didn't stop you from reading those x-rays. Me and my guys were in my barn up at my on that hill at 5 a.m. yesterday morning, having these horses ready to show at 7.30 in the morning, and I didn't stop you from walking up there and seeing this horse and doing your own homework. So part of me feels that way, too. You know, the, how much more do we have to put on the seller for our obligation to do the job that a lot of the buyers, in my opinion, are too lazy to do themselves, which is have their homework done and be prepared to go buy a horse by having full knowledge about it. No, I, I, so, I, I agree that the buyers need to spend the money to do it themselves and get their own veterinarian's opinion. Um, that's that's always how I operated, and I, I was uh, I was rarely granted a, a, a massive budget to to buy horses. But uh, whenever I was buying for someone else, I always felt like we should have a vet. I used to use Doctor Begay for a, a, a long time and uh, Pug Heart uh, as well. And those guys, I, I trusted their opinion and. If they said no, then it was no, because you have to be able to uh, draw the line. And I'm sure that there was horses that we might have passed on that that were fine. And I'm sure we also probably more uh, than that, there was probably horses that they they X'd off that that did not turn out to be fine, that wound up having issues. And I wound up training a lot of horses uh, that people couldn't sell that had issues. And believe me, um, most of them (laughs) that had issues – as babies, uh, you know, the vets weren't wrong. Uh, the market uh-huh. wasn't wrong. And uh, some of them won, and they had talent, but <clears throat> it was a longevity thing. And, and that's, yes. that's the thing about soundness is that it's not that a horse can't get to the races or they can't win. It's they just don't have the capacity to uh, – the physical capacity to stay sound for an extended period of time. And uh, Do you, yeah, do you, re- uh, do you recall – do you recall the 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 the, the weanling that <laughs> the disastrous weanling pinhook? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> that we got sold <laughs> that we couldn't yeah. sell as the yearling. Remember, he, he came in and he went lame. Yeah, he went lame at as as uh, and you were like trying to put him in ice. And I remember you oh. saying, "Chuck, what can we do?" To, and I was like, "At this point, nothing. <laughs> you know, it's just exactly there's not much." And then we wound up buying him back, and then bring him to, down to um, the old Calder sale. And yes. I think it was OB. It was OBS, right? It was. Uh, it was. Bo- yeah, it was OBS. It was their first sale. It was the OBS yes. first sale. Well, they used to do one in January, right? And, yes, and it was in. Uh, it was like the end of January at at, uh, at Calder. Yeah, and they had the bone warranty, and, and the horse breathed good. And I yeah. Niall Brennan had the horse; he breathed good, and yeah. he sold for like a hundred and ten thousand dollars. So it was going to be a big success. <laughs> and then the next day, the phone call: <laughs> "Hey, um, that horse has got a flake in its knee." And we had X-rayed it after it worked, mm-hmm. and and we didn't really see much. And there was a big debate um, over whether that was significant and that, that of course that's always the word significant and and, mm-hmm. and i remember um i think i think pug hart was 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 on our side and saying that that's not significant that's you know that that's almost you know it, it's very tough to see and and i remember the the obs people came to us and said listen these guys are brand new buyers it's the first horse and you know uh and and we wound up caving in and, and, and taking the horse back and then, mm-hmm. and then we said uh, of course, we we thought we were doing the right thing. 
Uh, of course. And I remember your dad was involved, and 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 we said, you know what? Let's just we're sending the horse up to Kenny Lejeune. And yep. uh, R.I.P. Kenny. Oh, God, God bless him. Hard, hard Throw the hair off that loud band the last day over yesterday. <laughs> 175. Did you know about that? Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Light, the storm blew in about an hour before the horse went up there. Lightning was cracking every time there was a bill on that horse. There was a lightning crack where Kenny was up there clapping for him. It was awesome, bro. It was an awesome scene when that horse hit his phone. He, he, was, he was such a good guy. But uh, I remember we sent him up and said, you know what? Let's just clean that knee up. We're going to give the horse yeah. six months or six weeks off, anyways. We're going yeah. there. It's a, you know, it, it'll it'll be a ten minute surgery, no problem. Yeah. The surgery went great. It like I said, it was like mm-hmm. a, the tiniest of tiny flakes. The, the I remember the surgeon said like you could almost not even see the thing. You know, like you guys shouldn't have been able. To, you shouldn't have had to turn this one back. But you know, at that point, I was like, all right, listen, it's a nice horse. He breathes well. Uh, sure. you know, should be fine. And I remember, like two days after he got the Lejeune's farm, Kenny called me. He's like, "Man, I got bad news." <laughs> and the horse had ripped the bandage off its knee and kind of oh, like, right. mangled itself. And and then we got the horse to the races that that the net the following winter. Uh, yeah. He had just turned three at the fairgrounds, and I remember I couldn't get him in. I couldn't get him in. I couldn't get him in. And then finally, a race went on the grass, and we said, "Ah, let's put him on the grass. Let's That's at least get true. a race under his belt and, and see what happens." And he won. <laughs> uh-huh. And then we wound up selling him um, to California Connections, and yep. he never really panned out after that. Nope. But uh, lost his lost his best friend when he broke his maiden. Yeah, that that, that was that, that was so funny because, like you know, like I said you bought, you bought him. Um, you know, relatively cheap as a as a wheeling, and and you know he gets to the sale and he goes lame, and then you you know we get through the second sale and 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 a vet issue pops up, and it was uh-huh. just the uh, uh, the fact that he wound up winning first time out, and, and we wound up getting out on the horse was was, was uh, just remarkable. <laughs> it, what we were, we we were cursed and blessed in all in one in exactly. one horse. Exactly, and that's the great thing, right, Chuck? I mean, that's the thing. You know, I think that's a big part of it. And if I remember that horse. We bought that horse from a person that knows what to do in raising a horse, and my father certainly has proven over his 40-plus years in the game, he knows how to raise a sound horse. And, you know, I think going back to what you're talking about regarding these radiographic defects and the soundness issues, um, I think a big part of all this stuff is how we're raising our horses right now. You know, as an industry that's so commercially driven, we're not breeding a weaker horse. The genetic guys say you can't change a breed in 40 years. You can't do that. It's just not, it's not possible. And, um, but what are we doing raising a weaker horse by not letting them live outside in the hills? And like all the young horses at my dad's farm right now, I'm up here in Lexington. It's just warmer than it's been all day right now at 34 degrees. There's still snow on the ground and the wind is blowing to where it's in the low 20s. And every young horse, except for the newborn baby at my dad's farm, is outside right now, running around, well fed, fat, happy, and fuzzy, laying down bone, growing cardiovascular immunity and being a horse, you know, and too many people don't raise horses that way anymore because they're so worried about radiographic issues and cosmetic issues that they're raising China dolls instead of race horses, and we're ending up with these horses that, you know, I think it's one of the contributing factors to the fewer starts per career we have for these horses. I think a lot of other factors as well that have nothing to do with that that we can talk about another day. But I think that we don't do enough as a group, which is why you see when I sell my dad's horses, his name's on top of the page because everybody knows that my dad raised it. 
That's the flow. That's somebody going to show up on game day and give you what it's got. It's going to be sound. It may be a tin claimer, but it'll be the best tin claimer you ever claimed. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm fortunate in my career and in my life to learn from guys like my father and people that, like Bill Betts and all these peers and Bill Graves and Brian, his son at Gainesway now, and all these friends of mine that we've learned the husbandry to raise these horses, you know, and let them be horses and grow up. I mean, you know, that stuff Arthur Hancock talks about, that stuff in the Hancock that we talk about is true. But you got to let them be a horse. And there's a reason that Bo Lane and Bill Betts and Jeff Morris and Claiborne and Gaysway and these breeders and these farms and Stone Street, these places, they get these consistently good results at the racetrack and the sailing every year because whether they're Bo Lane and Jeff Morris with a limited budget or they're Barbara and the Stone Street team, Miss Bank with a big budget, or in between, they're raising their horses right, and those horses go and perform. So they're sought after at the marketplace and the racetrack, you know? And um, that's what I think is a big factor in our industry right now, but I don't know how you fix it. You know, it's like how you can tell somebody to raise their children. I, you know what I mean? I did you a... can't change it, but what it does create is, which is what I go back to with the stallions and the number of mares bred, and the great thing about our industry is a whole lot of our industry is a free market. Right. And that creates opportunities for guys like all those people I just named. That, and I'm sure there's a bunch of people that I didn't name, Chuck, that you know. And there's a bunch of people that are going to listen to this podcast that are mad at me thinking, he knows me, why didn't he say my name? There's a bunch of people in this business that do a very, very, very good job and raise horses that go out and outrun their coverage and outrun their pedigrees and perform day in, day out, and are a joy to train every day. And a lot of those horses have $5 pedigrees, a lot of those horses have $5 million pedigrees, but they were all raised the right way by people that are good good caretakers, good horse people, good animal people. It's, it's a husbandry thing. It's more than just, you know, you got to have some feel for it. You know what I mean? And um, I think that's something... But, and if you go, look, you know, you've trained horses for a lot of those guys I just named, bud. And if they had problems when they got there, they probably ran through the problems. But another ones you had from other places with the same problems. And if they didn't have problems, they were less likely to get them. Because they're just overall a more hardy horse. Their immune system and everything about them just more hardy. I remember Dale Rowans asked me one day at Keeneland in the back ring, he goes, Stu, you've been around this horse? I said, yeah, Dale, this one was raised at my dad's place. I've been watching this horse. I've been around him every day. You know, he goes, this horse ever have foot abscesses? I was like, let me, I was like, um, it's kind of took me off guard because I'm in the back ring. I got people flying around. It's a lot of action. I'm like, no, Dale, I don't remember this horse ever. Be, he's a horse you forgot about in the barn. You know, he never had foot problems. He never was sick. He just was feed him and stay out of his way. And then I, saw, I said, why do you ask? He goes, let me tell you something, son. He says, those horses that have always got a little problem when they're growing up, they always got a problem in my barn, too. I don't want them. I can make my own problems. I don't want to start with one that just as weak and compromised. That's you know true. what I mean? And that kind of hit me right in the face, black and white right there, in a very blunt and succinct way that Dale summed it up. But um, when I think back about the horses that I've been around in my life that were the good good, Chuck, he's right. I think the best, the best advertisement for raising your horses outside 
and for letting them be horses is Ken Ramsey. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. I, I, I did an Absolutely. experiment that I didn't know I was doing at the time, but I trained for him for about three years. I had roughly 50 horses for, for Ken, two-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Not 50 horses. I, I had lots more horses than that. We used to claim horses like mad. Um, but we had about 50 two-year-olds that came in. One of them. Off the farm that were his yes. They were, they were raised out in yes. his farm or his fields and his water wells. And one. Place, right? One of them. Bookshins one, mm-hmm. and it wasn't as though like I'm probably a more conservative trainer than a lot of guys with with young horses, but one out of like literally 50, oh, it was like two percent, and and that is the thing is those horses were raised outside, mm-hmm. um, and, and you got to remember, Mister Ramsey was not at this time. He, he we were standing Gazi, okay? He wasn't standing I Kittens remember. Joy. Gazi was the stallion, and, and um. He bred ninety percent of his horses to the stallion, and he yep. was a, a, not a bad stallion. He wasn't certainly anything close to Kitten's Joy or or a, no. a nationally uh, acclaimed stallion. But he, you know, he he got runners, and the thing yeah. about it was that we he was claiming mares out of five thousand dollar races, anything that had a little tiny bit of pedigree and speed. That was his that was his formula. And speed, right? Speed. They have that speed. It, yeah, they didn't have a really big pedigree. They had to have speed. And and, and believe me, you, you're not finding a lot of mares with really big pedigrees for five, ten thousand dollars even back then. Um, no, it's like remember when he claimed that one, the honor and glory at the end of her career. Yeah. The the filly of uh, she made a last start for like fifteen. And he took her and bred her. Yeah, he's. Uh, he he I had a tremendous. I know. I can't remember. <laughs> remember she won first down going two turns down the middle of the racetrack. Yes, that 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 actually that Philly got me a, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, play in Vegas that year because I had remember I, I bought um, a Philly by. Um, I had a friend, and I've told this story before. I had, I had a friend who was a, a boxing uh, manager, and he was old at the time, and he really didn't. I don't think he had any boxers left to manage. He had like one guy, and the guy had a record like six and eleven. So he was he would what he would do is he would hang out at the at the race books, and he would try to you know come up use his connections to come up with horses tips for the race book managers or, or the the casino hosts. And if they won, he you know he'd get a, they'd cut him off a little something or give him some free dinner passes or whatever. So he called me and he, and he wanted a horse. And I said, listen, I, I have a horse um, by Thunder Gulch that can really run. That's exactly right. And, and, Thunder Gulch, Thunder and Glory. And, and, and that, that, that was yeah. a Thunder Gulch filly. Yeah. Um, I had a Thunder Gulch filly that we had bought out of the Timonium sale for like 120000 that could really yeah. run that got hurt. And that's the one yeah. I was talking about. And I had yeah. forgotten about about the, the Kim's horse who who was just, you know, I mean, she she was a horse. She, had, she couldn't see very well. Uh, we we wound up uh, finding out that, that she would zigzag down the track, and finally, I remember Frankie, the exercise rider, um, said, I, "I don't think she sees the poles. She only zigs when when the poles come up." And and it was she had a spot on her eye, and she literally wouldn't see like the the half mile pole, the quarter pole, until she was right up on it, and it would scare. Her. So she she had to be ridden like in the middle of the track. And I remember we tried to get her in a maiden ten, a maiden fifteen, a maiden twenty, maiden whatever. I and it was I remember Kim saying, "Chuck." 
run that horse before we ship. I don't want to ship it all the way down to Florida and find out it's it's no good. I mean, you're trying to run the horse from eight and fifteen, so you obviously don't think a lot of it. So we, yeah, we don't want to put the van right yeah, into it for no reason. Exactly. So so we enter in a maiden special weight going a mile. A mile. <laughs> Phil Teeter. It was one mile. I know. It was a one turn. Phil Teeter and I told Phil. Listen, man, just let her get her feet under her, try to make a run, try to pick up as much as you can. Oh, yeah, by the way, don't get close to the rail because she's terrified of the of the poles. You know, yeah. so, and, and it was, remember, it was a kind of a cold day, and, and I went outside, and I watched the race from the second floor church. I didn't even watch on TV because I figured she'd be way at the back, you know, so she wouldn't be on the TV. So I'm watching, and, and, and I remember Luke was still alive. Luke Kryposh was still alive. Uh-huh. And he call, I heard him call her last down the back stretch and then uh-huh. you know like they, they went into the turn and it was it was late in the day and it was it was the fall so you know the sun yeah, was down like and shadows across right the, the light wasn't that good and and i could see those those blue and yellow silks and and she was wide like but moving and, and he uh-huh. called her moving on the outside but still you know or very wide or some, some kind of comment it was kind of negative and she was literally in the middle of the track because I, uh-huh. I remember, I told Teeter, don't get near the rail. He was closer to the outside rail than the inside rail. I know. <laughs> and she's coming down. And uh, Churchill, when you're on that second floor and you're looking up the stretch, they're kind of coming right at you for a little bit. So yep. you, you don't have a great, uh, you know, great vision of it. And, and all of a sudden, perception. you get to the eighth pole, and she just kind of like takes off. Or maybe the other one started to stagger. And she runs by him, and she wins. And she's yep. 75 to 1. And yep. I'll never forget, my phone rang immediately after, like literally 10 seconds after they crossed the wire. And it was a Vegas number. And I don't even know why I answered it. And I remember a bunch of people had, had called me. I don't know if it was a pick six carryover or something. Yeah, or maybe, there, maybe it was a payout. They had to pay it out. So everybody called me that morning. Hey, what about your first timer? Nah, she's no good. Nah, she'll she'll have a hard time in this race now, right? So everybody in the world is pissed off at me. I see a Vegas number. I answer it, and and it's the guy. And he's like, oh, my God, you're the greatest. And I'm like, what is he talking about? He goes, I told everybody that Chuck's got a Thunder Gulch Philly that can't lose. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, my God, these guys bet that horse. It's not the right horse. It's the other horse, you know? So so they bet, and, and the guy gets on the phone. He was the head casino host or executive casino host at uh, at Caesars, and, and and he was like, "Listen, I heard you because we were going out. Me and my you know ex wife were flying out to Vegas after that. Me 